Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, shalom. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Good to see all of you. Oh, it's so good to see you. I'm actually, uh, I didn't want to take the risk. The weather out in Judea was crazy windy. The internet was choppy. So I said, you know what? Regardless of how I feel right now, I'm not risking this fellowship. And I'm coming in. So I came into Yerushalayim. I'm in Jerusalem, and I'm at Jeremy's parents' house where we broadcast from. There's a good internet connection here. And I was picking a virtual background, and I feel like the one that just stood out to me was the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Because if there's ever a time I felt redemption in my life, it's right now. Because you are seeing a, uh, you're seeing a very happy Jew. And, uh, and I'm just so grateful, and I'm, I love seeing all of you. Janet, Rivka, Callan Ardell, Shalom, Richard, Irene. I wish I could go through all the names and really just call you out and talk to you. Andrea, Esther, Tehila. Oh, there's Tehila. That's great. Hi, Tehila. Okay, that's exciting. Now I know how that's going to go. We didn't even know how that was going to turn out. But anyways, you're a, I'm a happy Jew. I'm a grateful Jew. I'm a very, very tired Jew. And uh, because, you know, Hashem has blessed me with a son. And uh, saying those words, I'll tell you, will never, ever get old. Never. Uh, last night was the first night, actually, that our little boy slept in his home in Judea. And uh, let's just say it, it didn't go so smoothly. You know, Dvash, she's used to sleeping in quiet house. She was like just on her own. And so this new baby crying kept her up, which kept us all up. And we are just all spent. And that is not a complaint. We are overjoyed. We are so blessed. It's just very clear to me. Why people tend to do this in their 20s and not in their 40s. But, um, you know, Abraham and Sarah, they were probably pretty tired too. But uh, anyways, just uh, there's, there's no words for the gratitude. And we've received your flurry of WhatsApps and emails. And they have touched our heart so deeply. And uh, please, God, when the opportunity arises and the dust settles, I look forward to responding to all of you and thanking you. But uh, just know that you're messages have been read and absorbed and appreciated. And I know that Jeremy's announcement in the chat last week may have taken you by surprise. I actually had some words with Jeremy about that, but he meant well. He's my best friend. Um, you know, th there's a reason that I hadn't been sharing all of this with you. Um, because, you know, there were times in our journey, Shana and I, in our journey, that there were real ups and downs. And I wanted to share with you what was going on, not, not only out of my own personal desire to share with you for my own sake, knowing the support and the love and the blessings that you shower me with, that you always do. But I also wanted to share with you because we're a family here and uh, I tend to wear things on my sleeve and I like it that way. But this journey, there were parts of it that were so sacred and, and so personal that my own immediate family still doesn't know. And I think on some level, it's important that we all have our our holy of holies. You know, we have our own secrets with Hashem. And, uh, and so ultimately I, I dug very deep and I felt in my heart that this facet of my journey needed to be between me and Shana and Hashem. Like I said, you know, there's, there's also an idea that I could elaborate further on another fellowship if it interests you, but it's an idea that Hashem sometimes blesses that which is hidden from the eye, right? That is nistar min ha'ayin, which is hidden from the eye. You know, some people post everything on Facebook and on social media. As you know, we don't. We don't, you know, ever post anything about dvash, about our, ourselves. We just don't want to put it out there, you know, because people, even good people, uh, holy people, they feel a, a, a little twinge of, of sadness or of jealousy or of anger because, you know, social media makes everybody look so great. And that transference of energy, something happens there. You know, it doesn't make anyone bad. You know, um, so you guys are the only ones really that we are family and you personally is, the, is who we share pictures of Dvash with. And, and the reason is that for me, a lot of it has to do with feeling unworthy. And, uh, you know, you may remember from the book of Job, of Eov, of Job, that there was the prosecuting angel, you know, the Satan. If you actually look in the book of Job, it really shows you who the Satan is. I think in some parts of Catholicism and other places in Christianity, People think that the Satan is this fallen angel that fights against God. But to us, that would be almost like blasphemous. Like to us, the Satan is the, like the prosecuting attorney. He's one of God's angels that has a mission and has a job. 
And when he saw all of Job's blessings, right, Eov's blessings, he said, um, he doesn't deserve that. He doesn't really believe. Test him. Test him. See how he is. And uh, if, if Eov, if Job was unworthy, well, I definitely don't feel like I would be worthy. So sometimes it feels like, you know, flashing things out there, like announcing things to the world, even when it's from the best and the holiest places, it may bring attention that we don't want and cause divine questions of worthiness to be asked. Anyways, I hope I went into that. You know, we, we've been through a lot of heartbreak. We've been through devastation. And perhaps, you know, on some simple level, I, I think on some simple dimension, um, we were just protecting ourselves. We are putting up walls of protection so that, uh, you know, for reasons I'm not fully conscious or aware of, um, that's the way it happened. That's why I shared it with you. And maybe I'm going into this too much. None of you seem to mind. You just flurried me with blessings and love and and that's just so, so great. Um, you know, because every part of this, we felt just helpless and dependent in Hashem's hands. And, uh, you know, Hashem blessed me with a young, healthy boy. And I want to share some of the journey with you now, if that's okay, with your permission. Because again, this is not on social media or YouTube, but I'm eager to share it with you. But before I do, before I go into it, I feel like I've already gone too much. Please allow me to introduce... Jeremy and Tahila. I don't know who has a video, who's going live. They're in England right now, um, but they have been so supportive to me, for me and Shana. It's just been incredible. Uh, Jeremy's been great, but nowhere near as wonderful as Tahila has been, but uh, still a magnificent friend in his own right. Um, so I don't know who's going first, Jeremy or Tahila. You're in England right now. I don't know what the deal is, but I'm eager to hear from you. Hey, Fellowship, as you're about to hear from Tehillah, we are in London right now. We were invited by the Jewish community here, um, along with 42 other top rabbis and teachers that were sent all across the United Kingdom for this one Shabbat right after Yom Ha'atzmaut to bring strength, to bring Torah, to bring inspiration to the Jewish community in England. And it's been an amazing weekend. We've been teaching nonstop. Um, today is the finale of this giant conference and Teal and I had just a few hours to kind of sneak away and say hello to you and to kind of walk the streets of London for the first time alone. And, you know, this week's Torah portion, we learn about Svirata Omer and we're counting the Omer. And I can't help but be in England as I'm kind of contemplating what all of it's pointing us to. So Svira means to count, Sipur, which is the same letters, means story, and sofer means author. And so somehow numbering the days, telling the stories of the days, counting the days, being the author of your days, sort of like what this whole time brings us to. And you know, in London, there's so many different peoples and nationalities and stories that are being told. And especially the museum, just empire after empire and story after story, narrative after narrative. But there is one story that sort of brings it all together, and that is the story of Israel through the lens of the Tanakh. And I'm just thinking that there's so much noise out there nowadays. What's happening in the Ukraine, and what's happening in big tech, and what's happening in America, and what's happening in politics, and what's happening here, and what's happening there. But underneath the surface, there is another narrative that is connecting all of the dots. And if you're not open enough to see it, or if you're not aware enough to look for it, you might just miss it. But there is a vision that after the people of Israel come back to the land, that ki mitzion Torah, that the Torah will go forth from Zion and the word of God from Jerusalem. This is the first time this has ever happened, that Israel, as a community, has sent 42 rabbis in, in Rabbaniot across the United Kingdom as um, ambassadors of Torah from the land of Israel to speak and give strength to the Jewish people outside of Israel. And that is the first time that we can see a real step forward in fulfilling that vision. And to be a part of this first delegation has just been such an honor and such a pleasure. And although I came here to kind of bring the light of Israel to these communities, I found that just participating in this act has filled me with light myself. And so I just wanted to share the good news from London that as all of the news around the world is speaking of one story, 
there is this amazing unfolding story, the destiny of the Bible that is happening right beneath the surface, and that we just need to have our eyes to count it, to see it, and then to author our lives into it. And that's really what Svirata Omer is all about. So I'm going to introduce Tehila now because she has a beautiful Torah to share of our experience in the British Museum. And so, Shalom from London. We'll see you soon. Hey everyone, I'm so excited to be here live. First time. It's so wonderful to see all of the familiar faces and the new faces. Um, so, hey, um, Jeremy and I, as he said, are here in London for the UK <clears throat> Week of Inspiration. It's a beautiful project, 42 speakers from Israel going to all the Jewish communities uh, teaching Torah classes. And we've been working quite hard, like two or three lectures each day, but we've been so lucky because we got to meet the chief rabbi of England and just all-star teachers. They let us have just a few hours to break away. And you guys know in uh, Psalm 116, it says, Shomer p'tayim Hashem. And the English says, Hashem preserves the simple-hearted. But if you speak Hebrew, you know it doesn't really mean simple-hearted. It kind of means simple-minded, kind of like me. Hashem protects sort of dumb people like me. And, you know, I was going on every website trying to figure out how to get a tour guide to take us around the British Museum uh, so we wouldn't just be sort of stumbling around bumping into things and nothing was working out. Everyone said, oh, no, we're too busy. We're too busy. Out of nowhere. When we went to have this meeting with the chief rabbi, this guy comes up to me and he's like, oh, you know, I can take you on a tour of the British Museum. And I think, okay, you're a guy. Good enough for me. That, that's all I was hoping for. So I said, sure, local person. Turns out he was Rabbi Dr. Rafi Zurum, a brilliant British physicist who's also a rabbi and the dean of the highest institute for Judaic studies in England. Look how Hashem loves us and protects us, right? He just like guides our way. So he is probably the world's expert on biblically related artifacts in the British Museum. It was unbelievable. You know, the British Museum has the greatest collection of artifacts from the Middle East with the earliest existing proofs of the biblical stories. So, you know, as Bible believers, it's such a special experience to go around this museum because you see there people from all over the world and they're kind of like wandering around like, hey, look at that old thing. Look at that old thing. A lot of things, you know, but when you're a Bible believer and especially when you're a Jew, it's like going to visit grandma and grandpa. You know, you're going to see stories that are they're like our stories. They have artifacts there from the temple of Ur, the actual temple from the time of Abraham. When like Abraham would go with Terah to like his idol worship place, that's the one they actually saw. And the thing that he rejected, like you see with your own eyes, these things, it's just such a, a profound experience. And one of the greatest things is they have an actual um, carving of the face of Ahasuerus, of King Ahasuerus holding his scepter. Like you can see the face. No, no, not that picture. Sorry, soon. You can see the face of Ahasuerus holding holding his scepter, the scepter that Esther was waiting to be like held out to her when she thought she was going to get the death penalty. So it's really a remarkable experience. But there's one artifact that touched me in particular, and now is the time for that picture that you just showed. Yes, this this is a wall sculpture from Assyria, from the palace of Sanherib. You know, there's a verse in the second book of Kings, chapter 17, verse 22. It says, for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he has said, by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried out of their own land. The 10 tribes were taken to Assyria. Now this wall relief, it's an original thing that we saw in the museum. It's a picture of all of the prisoners that Sanherib took the Assyrian prisoners of war, they were taken to build his palace in Nineveh, the capital. And the castle was decorated with pictures of how the palace was built. Like, you know, we went to Dubai and saw the Burj Khalifa, the highest building, the, the tallest building in the world. And they had all these pictures showing how it was made. And, you know, so the build, so the castle of Sanherib, he also put the pictures of how it was made. Now, here's the remarkable thing. There are rows and rows and rows of slaves. Historians have looked at these rows and figured out who is who based on the way that they're dressed and based on their headgear. And you have a row that they know are clearly Israelites. Now, if you look carefully, 
There's one Israelite there. They're all carrying these heavy loads of stones, dozens and dozens of slaves and this huge wall carving. But there's one slave who's actually putting his hand on the other Jew, the Israelite's shoulder. There are no, there are people, slaves there from all of the nations and not one of them is putting their hand on the other one's shoulder. Can you guys see that one in the middle row? Do you see the one, the guy on the right? He's actually putting his hand on his friend's shoulder. And it's like the, whoever was the artist carving this, it must have been so striking to him that he actually took the time to carve this one Israelite comforting the other Israelite. And when you look at it, you can just imagine these Israelite slaves taken captive in the time of the Bible. And, and you know, one saying to the other, you know, brother, this is going to pass. We know the end of the book. We're going to get through this together. You know, saying like, there's a Jewish destiny. We're going to go forward, even though this time is hard. And this time is so hard. And that togetherness was striking enough for an Assyrian artist to take time to immortalize it on this wall. And now I imagine, you know, we're these Jews coming from Israel to see the closest thing to a photo of the Israelites described in the Bible being taken to Assyria, you know, and we're looking at it and imagining, you know, what that was like giving heart to one another and strengthening and encouraging each other that there's Jewish destiny. And we're Jews coming from Israel to strengthen the hearts of the Jews in England. And we're seeing this and then sharing it with you. And it's just, you think the Jewish story, the story of the Bible is the most remarkable and inspirational story ever told. So, you know, you just see in the museum, empire after empire, with these huge monuments that they made to remember themselves. There's, you know, Ramses, who was Pharaoh, you know, out of the time of the Bible. You see these monuments and people who thought they would last forever. But we didn't make monuments. We didn't leave monuments. We left the Torah from generation to generation. And so those empires are gone and the Jewish people are still here. And you can just see how the promises of Hashem have come to pass. You know, in this coming week's Parsha that we'll read in Israel is the Chukotai, where Hashem describes all of the trials and tribulations that we're going to go through in the exile. So he promises that he'll keep the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then to see layer by layer Jewish history, you know, and biblical history and how it's developed is just marvelous. And then our guide showed us this book written more than 100 years ago in 1914. It's the first Jewish guidebook to the artifacts of the British Museum. And the last page is remarkable. The author is talking about all the nations that rose and fell and they are no longer. And he finishes with this line. He says, that is the miracle. As we walk amongst the stones that I've shown you tonight, can even the most skeptical among us fail to pause and wonder at the Jewish survival? We are a race that walked amid these stones when they were alive with the people of the past but we are still living. We are the cement that holds these dead stones together. We still exist. Shall we allow ourselves to die? And that was written before the Holocaust. You can imagine how powerful and true those words are in our generation. So I just wanted to share that thought with you. And of course, I wanted to wish Ari and Shana a huge mazel tov and congratulations. And I'm sorry that we're not with you to like stay up at night with Dvaj and the baby and you guys are having it on your own, but we'll be back soon enough to try to pitch in. So big hug to Shana and muzzle tub to you guys. Bye everyone. Thank you so much, Tehila. That was really, really beautiful. You know, sometimes when people are really, really smart, it comes at the expense of like emotional IQ, like compassion, kindness. Tehila is even more brilliant when it comes to that. She has just been such a source. Jeremy too. Really, really. I mean that. But uh, Tehillah has just been such an incredible source of support for us. And Shana was in the hospital. Dvash had a fever. Tehillah runs over and just took care of everything. Taught me what a, where a thermometer goes. Anyways, very, very super grateful, Tehillah. Thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, so I, I wanted to just go on a little bit and share with you guys a little bit about, you know, what happened, uh, the journey, because it wasn't just, you know, sharing what happened. It was really a spiritual journey. So, um, so you know, back just for a second to me and Shane, I think, you know, I felt, we felt so vulnerable, so in Hashem's hands, because from the first day, Shana was classified as a high-risk pregnancy, right? We're both 42 years old, so I don't know how it works in America, 
But uh, I think here in Israel, Tila, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone over 36 is already considered high-risk pregnancy here in Israel. And we're significantly over that. And so uh, from the beginning, that, that was like a factor and something to consider. Now, um, some of you in this fellowship know my whole journey, and some of you know part of it. Someday, you know, when we're actually here in Judea around the bonfire, maybe I'll tell you the whole crazy thing. But, um, but it's been long and painful and confusing, and I really never knew how it would turn out. Really, I think the same with Shana as well. Her journey was very different than mine, but at the core, it's very much the same. Neither of us knew or had any guarantees, to no reason to think that this would be our lot right now. Um, neither of us took for granted that we'd arrive at such a moment like this, that we'd be our, living in our home in Judea with a delicious daughter and an infant son. It's just crazy. And, you know, looking back, I very much connected to the words that Yaakov, Jacob, ex expressed when he was reunited with Yosef, right? After 22 years where he thought he'd been torn to death by wild animals, they were finally reunited. And he said, Ra'o panecha lo pilalti. Right? And, and Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face. And lo, Hashem has shown me also your seed, also your children. The word in Hebrew, pilalti, is reflexive. Right? He was saying that he just never allowed himself to think. He could have never conceived that he would see Joseph again. It wasn't in the spectrum of possibilities that he entertained. And there he was seeing Joseph and his children. And that's how a lot of this week has has felt for me. Um, you know, I, I thought uh, there was just a little moment where I uh, had between go, leaving Shane in the hospital and picking up Dvash, and I decided to make myself a hot meal. And so I made myself a steak and I bit into the steak and uh, my tooth snapped in half, in half. Half of my tooth fell out of my mouth, right? And, and I remember thinking like, okay, the baby's okay. Shane is okay. Dvash is okay. I'll take the tooth. Really, I, I was. it's so weird to be happy when half of your tooth falls out of your mouth. But again, I just never entertained the thought, really, that I would have a little boy and a little girl. It's just so so beyond. That's how I felt. And um, I never really allowed myself to believe that I, I don't know why a boy and a girl, that's actually the fulfillment of Peru or Vu, of uh, be fruitful and multiply, having both a boy and a girl. And I think part of the reason I never let my mind really go there is because it's often a bad recipe to compare the life Hashem has chosen for you, meaning the life that you're actually living, filled with all the challenges that He wants you to have, which are quite often the opposite of those you choose for yourself. And it can just be a bad recipe to compare the life he's orchestrated for us with these preconceived notions, these preconceived expectations and desires and really fantasies that we've put in our own minds. And, and by putting these fantasies in our minds, we're unconsciously really declaring ourselves creator of the universe. It's, it's a self-delusion that really we all struggle with to some degree. I know that I do. And, uh, and when, which we refuse to lovingly accept the way things are the way things Hashem has decided for his best to be in our lives. So I, I, can't, I tried to constantly avoid expectations. And it often feels like an impossible task, but, uh, but we can try. You know, we can try. But looking back at my journey, I wouldn't trade in all that pain for anything. Because if there's one thing I really see super clearly looking back, and I think, you know, people that have been with me, close to me on the journey, Jeremy and Tehillah, I think they would testify to this truth, that uh, those challenges and all that pain it really grew me. It refined me. It made me into the person I needed to be in order to have the attributes, really the, the vessels, the, the spiritual tools that I would need to, to receive the light and the blessings Hashem is showering on me right now. Um, so I tried to never let my mind go there, and I'm pretty sure that Shana didn't either. So as exhausting as last night was, there were so many out-of-body out of moments you know, playing one-on-one -on -one and tending and comforting our children in our home together it felt like we were playing home. Like, you got the little boy, I got the big girl. You know, when we were back, heading back from Shabbat, we, I looked in the back and there were two car seats in the back of the car. I mean, two car seats in the back of the car. Who, I just, who would have ever thought such a thing? Something so simple for some people, the Gimpals have six, right? But something as simple as two seats in the back brought me more joy than I can describe. And we actually feel like to some degree, we like have a family. It's just so unbelievable. 
But so let's take a step back for a second to the beginning. So as I said, Shana was at high risk. So they recommended not going past your due date, but rather to induce, right? To hasten the process. And, uh, and when that process began, the words of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 22, shot into my head and I shared it with Shane and she's like, wow, where did that come from? But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm going to start at verse 18 to give some context because Isaiah is speaking of messianic times. And a birth also has a lot of these very elements of redemption and salvation and awakening that is very much connected to messianic times. I'm sure you've used those terms, right? That we're experiencing the birth pangs of Messiah, that the tzirim, you know, the contractions are already starting to happen, that something new is being born. All right, so let's look inside. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 18. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord shall be for you an everlasting light and your God your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Your people shall also be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The least one shall become a thousand, and the smallest one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. So there's much to discuss about all of these terms, really. I actually had to, when I was scripting, and putting my ideas together, I had to take out a huge part of it because I really wanted to go deep into this prophecy. But there's a lot of debate, uh, but it really culminates in the words, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time, right? Either it will be in its time or Hashem will hasten it, right? Either it will be in its time or he'll expedite it or he will induce it. It will come earlier. But what does it mean that he will hasten it in its time? By the way, Tahila, if you have something smarter to me than me to say about this, please unmute yourself and share it. But I just wanted to, to, to share this thought that happened with me, right? Because I don't know if this makes sense to anyone but me, but I really felt like I was experiencing that very thought, that very thing. The time had come, right? The due date had arrived, but the baby was not yet coming. So in its time, it was hastened, right? The time had arrived, but we had to hasten it. And I think perhaps that's what we will see with the coming of Mashiach really any day right now, that the preordained time will have arrived. I actually think it has arrived, but we just still aren't worthy. We aren't ready. So Hashem will hasten it. And, and that's what happened with us. They tried these uh, natural methods of inducing that were working, but then the great hastening came. The great hastening, that's what I should call this fellowship. You know, I, I really want to, I wanted to dive deeper into this because there's a lot to say, but between my not fully understanding really any of it and my desire to share this whole journey with you, I'm going to try to stay focused. But if any of you want to dive into the subject of in its time, I will hasten it from Isaiah in a future fellowship, reach out and let me know and I'll really try to revisit it because it's fascinating. Anyways, so the induction began and um, there's something like eight delivery rooms in Hadassah Hospital in Ain Karim where we were giving birth and although the rooms are disconnected and well insulated. We heard screaming. I mean, real screaming. Our doula told us that it's actually the most religious women that tend to have the most foul mouths when they're giving birth. And I'm not judging. Believe me, I'm not judging. But it sounded like some of these mothers-to-be were being just like tortured by Iranian interrogators. But it was not that way with Shana. Forgive me. She was, um, she was really silent. She had such strength. She went deep inside, just silent. She told me actually that she was visualizing the gates to the holy temple opening up for the nation of Israel to enter into it. And she was just lost in that thought and in that visualization that what was happening in her very body was in some way a parallel between the gates to the temple opening themselves, which is just so, so beautiful. And, uh, and it was very good that I was there. It was very good that I was there so that Shana could comfort me through the whole process. Because that's what was happening. I mean, it was just so, so scary. I, I talk a big game to you guys about faith and whatever, but it was so surreal and so raw. And, and it was scary. There was definitely a presence with us there in that room. Like the Shekhinah, God's presence just filled the room up. 
And um, and then there was the last push, and I saw the head come out and just woof immediately. And I heard the cry. And they had just pulled out of my wife this beautiful baby boy. And uh, they gave me these clippers, and I cut the umbilical cord. And, uh, you know, the sages say, Yeshuat Hashem Keheref Ayin, that the salvations of Hashem are like the blink of an eye. And then just like that, I was holding in my arms my baby boy. And I brought him near, and I cried. I'm pretty sure. I think I did. I don't know anything. But I held him in my arms, and I brought him close. And the first words that I whispered into his ear in this world, but the first verse that he heard as he was finally garbed in this fleeting human experience of the human body. The first words that I said to him were, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because it's all in there. That's the mission statement, the purpose, the deepest truth. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And then I put my hands over his head and I blessed him. I blessed him with the words that the Jewish fathers have been blessing their sons for thousands of years. Words that I never allowed myself to believe I would pronounce over the head of my very own son. Uh, even last week, you know, we, came, we ran to Tehillah on Friday night. We thought the contractions were starting, and it was something called Braxton Hicks. Have you heard of that? It's like a false call type thing. And Shana uh, Tila came over and told Shana to drink some wine. But it was so close that I actually blessed Shana's, I put my hands over her stomach and I blessed with these words, but in my heart, I really still refused to really believe that very soon that baby would be on the outside and I would be blessing him with, with these very words. And, so, you know, it's just thousands of years of Jews and now I'm taking my place. And so it's Yesimcha Elohim Ke'ephraim V'chemenasha Yivarechecha Adonai V'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai Panav Elecha V'chuneka May God bless you like Ephraim and Menashe. We've shared before why out of all of the patriarchs, Ephraim and Menashe are the ones that we choose to bless our sons by. So I said, may, may God bless you like Ephraim and Menashe. May God bless and protect you. May he shine his countenance upon you. May he bestow his face towards you and give you peace. And it was, it was again, it was like just an out-of-body experience. And then we sat there, me and my boy in my arms, and we just sang. For, for more than an hour, when the doctors were tending to Shana, we sang the Psalms of King David, particularly the ones that, at this point in my life, give me the most strength. Right? I sang uh, Ein Od Milvado. Right? I've shared with you all, all about Ein Od Milvado. There's nothing but Hashem in the world that if I'm ever in a place of real fear and doubt and confusion, I say those words. And it always at least takes the edge off. It helps me remember that these seeming enemies that have this power against me, it's just a different manifestation of Hashem, and he's the one in charge, and he's the one in control. And so I was singing Ein Od Mil Vado. It went like this. Ein Od Mil Vado. Ein Od Mil Vado. Ein Od Mil Vado. Ein Od Mil Vado. And we just sang this together. Say so we sang it together, that's what it felt like to me. There's nothing from, but God in the whole world. Anyways, the rest is a blur, but it was scary, at least for me, because as you all know, I struggle at coping with the extreme fragility of life. I've shared with this, this with you before. Still to this day, I walk into Devash's room at least twice every night just to hear her breathing. You know, she's two years old, you know, but it's just, just everything seems so fragile, especially me. I felt like, you remember that book of Mice and Men? And there was that giant sort of doofus guy that like accidentally broke someone's neck. And he was just like, I was just petting her, George. That, I actually played that guy in the play because it just, I feel like I'm just such a big dude. And it just is so hard for me to even, I just don't want to even get near him for the next three months. It just seems so fragile. And then we were transferred upstairs to the maternity ward or whatever it's called. So the baby was born at 2.14 a.m. Wednesday morning, May 11th. The 10th of ER, right? Ani Hashem Rofecha. God is our healer. And so I stayed with them in the room until uh, about 5.30 a.m. And while we were all exhausted, we decided that it would be best if I came back in time to see Dvash. Because Tehillah slept over with Dvash. And before Dvash went to school, I wanted to 
Seer that she shouldn't feel like abandoned in favor of a new baby. And that uh, so, you know, Jeremy and Tila, God bless them. I'm sorry, Tila, I see you there on the screen and I'm just like thanking you again and again. Shane and I are just so grateful because you took the entire day before when we were in the hospital and you took care of Dvash. And, um, and you're really the only ones that could because you're the only ones that she felt like family that she could trust that connection with to be just picked up like that. And so uh, it was the first time that we were apart for a night and I came back in to take her to kindergarten and after dropping her off, I just melted into bed to try to get some sleep. And that's when the call came, right? Shana was fighting off tears. Like I heard it in her voice and Shana is not an alarmist, which made me even more alarmed because if she's crying, that means something is happening. She doesn't have a flair for the dramatic, if anybody, that's me. But she said that the doctors came in and felt that the baby may be struggling to breathe. So they took him away. They took him away from her, which is a trauma in and of itself, and brought him to a room for supervision. And she told me this, and my stomach dropped, and the blood just rushed from my face. And, you know, we said comforting positive words to each other, and we hung up. And then I just started writhing in pain and praying. And I mean, really praying like calling out to Hashem, not in my mind and not just in my heart, but in my voice. I was, please, Hashem, please heal him, protect him, bless him. It was torture. There, there was no falling asleep. I don't, I don't think, I don't know. But I just didn't know what to do with myself. I thought perhaps, you know, I should dedicate him to Hashem. But I really didn't know the mechanism to do that. Something felt, felt strange about that because, you know, in my mind, how would that be different than what we were doing anyways? So, you know, it, it was just, it was a very, very difficult and painful time for Shana and for me. And I felt vulnerable and exposed and terrified and helpless. And after hours that felt like days, word came back. The doctor said that he was just fine, that he was actually spitting up amniotic fluid, which they say is actually sort of normal, but it's also crazy. That's, cr that's a crazy thing because just minutes before he was immersed in a warm, loving womb of amniotic fluid. And that's what he was breathing. He was breathing that fluid. I mean, just how crazy is that? And now he was in the world breathing air and purging himself of the remnants of the womb. You know, our sages say that when the baby emerges from the womb, what is closed becomes opened and what is opened becomes closed, right? The hands were clenched and then they open. The eyes were closed and they become open. The cord is open, it becomes closed. The heart, the lungs, it all reverses. Everything happens at that point. Just the entire essence of reality changes. Anyway, so don't worry, I'm not going to go play by play. Is this okay that I'm going into this like with you guys? So it was just so much of it was a blur. But when I could, I did try to reflect on those waves of insecurity and fear so I can dig deep and grow from it and strengthen my faith from it. Not only for myself and my own relationship with Hashem, but really... I feel more of a, of a responsibility on my shoulder now than ever before for, for Shana, for my family, that I can be a rock for them, like an unwavering rock of faith for them. I don't want to be the one that's losing it and afraid and projecting that on Shana. I want her to be able to rely on me, to depend on me. So, um, so as I do, what we're taught to do, uh, I turn to the Torah, right? To the living, breathing word of Hashem for guidance. And I turn to the Torah portion of the week. That's what we're supposed to do for guidance. And my initial thought when I looked at the Torah portion was that it would, it was really a real stretch to find any real connection. Even on Friday night, we had a little party with friends that came over and we shared Torah. It's called the Shalom Zachar, like welcoming the male child. There's also a Shalom Bat, welcoming a female. But, um, you know, I, I said, I wanted to share a thought with them. And I opened the Parsha and I read about Shemitah. They're like, yeah, let's see how you make this connection. Right. Uh, like, I just didn't think there was any applicable wisdom. It was about Shemitah, the sabbatical year. It was about land. What does that have to do with anything? But as I dove in deeper, Hashem started opening my eyes to the truth that he was speaking to me really in the most perfect way possible through the portion. Now, for Shabbat, we went to Shana's house in Jerusalem. And being that I just had a child born to me, I was called up to the Torah. And for me, you know, when I'm called up to the Torah, the haphazard coincidence of which of the seven aliyot, you know, there's seven aliyot, the portion is divided up into seven uh, ascensions that you're called up and you bless. And so they, they hand them out sort of randomly. So it was random, but I don't believe that anything is random. And so when I'm called up, I listen very carefully to the special tailored message to me in that aliyah, in that ascension, in that 
portion within the Parsha, within the Torah portion. So, um, so I was listening very carefully. So let's look inside, right? I was called up for the third Aliyah. I don't know if the Tanakhs you have are broken up into those seven ascensions, those seven portions of the portion. But uh, being that the first is reserved for a Kohen, right, for a descendant of Aaron, the high priest, and the second one is reserved for the Levite. So the third I was called up for, that's the greatest honor an Israelite could have, right? And here it, and here it is. It was short and to the point, and it told me really what I needed to hear. And I just decided, even though I could go to, just to the relevant verse, it was short enough I wanted to read the whole thing to, with you. So it's Leviticus chapter 29, verses 19 to 24. And the land shall yield her fruit, and you shall eat your fill and dwell in it safe and dwell in it safely. And if you shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in produce. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And you shall sow the eighth year and eat still of the old fruit until the ninth year, until the fruits come, and you shall eat of the old store. The land shall not be sold forever for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption for the land. Right? The portion is talking about the laws of the sabbatical year, Shemitah. And the verse that just pierced my heart was the last verse there. The land shall not be sold forever for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. I felt in my heart Hashem was telling me, that just as the land of Israel, the sabbatical year teaches this, teaches us exactly this, that it ultimately belongs to Hashem. So does everything in life belongs to Hashem, particularly the children he blesses us with. We're just sojourners in this world. Our lives, our souls, our children, they don't belong to us. They're entrusted to us. And when they're called back, it's out of our hands. You know, someone uh, came out to the farm recently and they saw my passion fruit tree and they asked if they could take some of my passion fruit. And I told them, really, you don't need to ask me. It's the sabbatical year. You don't need to ask me, just take it. And, um, and they sort of smiled like, you know, that's, that's funny, but they still felt like they needed to ask. And, and I told them, really, if, if you are asking me, it's a sign that we don't really take this seriously. You don't need to ask me. It belongs to the beasts of the field. It belongs to the people walking through the fields. You take whatever you want. The land and everything in it belongs to God. And that's what the sabbatical year teaches us. And so I could try to cleave right to my wife and my children and my land and my possessions with all my might. But ultimately, it's, it's out of my hand. It's just going to get me wound up in a ball of, of anxiety, right? It doesn't belong to me. I'm entrusted with it. And I'm not going to act like, oh, great, I, I read the verse. I got it figured out. Fear gone. I can relax now. It all belongs to Hashem. I understand it now. No way, right? The truth is that internalizing that knowledge from your, our heads to our hearts is a lifetime of work and prayer and focus and meditation and just taking our hands off. But I, I just, I felt very grateful to have at least been granted the direction. I felt like Hashem was telling me, right? Don't wound yourself, wind yourself up in knots here right? Your, your son is in my hands. He belongs to me. And, um, and so I just felt like I was given the raw materials that I can now start praying and internalizing that truth that nothing, I mean, nothing belongs to me. And I actually thought of a meeting I had many years before with our own beloved Krista Sauls. Krista's actually logged in right now. Um, perhaps actually this memory I had was jogged by the fact that Krista and her wonderful daughter actually came to Israel this past week. And of course, they were bearing plentiful gifts, of course. And while our plans to host her at the farm fell through, which was my fault, um, she was just so understanding and so loving. Uh, Shana and, and Dvash and I were able to meet them and have breakfast with them in Jerusalem, which was just wonderful. And uh, by the way, when you come to Judea and you drink our wine, you should know that the bottles were beautifully designed by the extraordinarily talented Kara, Kara Sauls, who created the label. You see that right there? I love it so much. A lot of labels, they have a lot of words and big words and big descriptions. No words for us. Just a picture of our house of prayer right there. And so I just, I feel like that's so beautiful. So thank you so much for that. Anyways, when I first met the Saul's family in California many years ago, I really don't remember. It could have even been 10 years ago. I don't know. She told me that her son, Jake, who is such a beautiful soul, I got to meet her whole family. 
you know, he had his heart setting on joining the U.S. Army. And I'll never forget what she went on to say. It really made an impression on me. It stayed with me. She said that she had already come to terms with the fact that she very well may lose him in combat, that he would die in the army, right? And, and I remember wondering how in the world a mother could even say those words. I mean, Krista's love for her children was very self-evident, very apparent, fierce, right? It was just overwhelming. So how could she say that? And, and now I understand. She was simply recognizing a truth that it was, it's, it's out of her hands. And if God called him back, then she would have to return him. That's just part of the deal. We're entrusted with our children. I remember my friend, uh, Yosef Goodman. He was younger than me and he served in the elite paratrooper unit of Maglan. And during one of the jumps, his parachute got tangled with his commanders and they were plummeting down towards the earth. And he cut off the strings of his parachute, saving his commander's life. But it was too late for his backup to deploy and he died. And at the funeral, I wept like I had never wept before for hours. Something just opened up in me in my whole life. I never wept that way. And I remember his mother over the microphone in the cemetery between tears. She was thanking Hashem. She was thanking Hashem for the years that she was gifted with her beloved Yosef. Thanking Hashem for entrusting her with his special soul that she was now returning to him. And so now it's my turn to work on expanding and deepening, you know, this aspect of my faith and recognizing that everything belongs to Hashem. We're just sojourners in this world. And this week's Torah portion showed me that. Anyways, I realized, I realized now that I'm, I'm going on a little bit longer than expected, but what are we going to do, right? We have a lot to catch up on and I want to share this with you. So I, I needed to share this with you. So this is not uploaded to YouTube or social media. And uh, as you know, I just, we never put up pictures of Dvash or our family up, up there, but I'm grateful to be sharing it with you here. So before we left for Shabbat, I uh, picked up, you know, Shana and brought her and the baby home from the hospital and I brought him under the sun and I told him that's the sun you're looking at and this is Judea and we brought him inside and told him this is his new home. And then I went to pick up Dvash to introduce her to her baby brother and I had no idea how that was going to go. Keep in mind, she's two years old, two years and two months. So we'd been trying to brief her about what was coming. But it was clear from a lot of our exchanges that she didn't quite get it. Most of the time she thought the baby was in her belly. Anyways, I brought her in and the video of them meeting. So I have a 12-minute version and I have a four-minute version. And I also have an 88-second version. And in order to avoid getting told off by Jeremy for having too much dvash in the fellowship, I just decided to share the greatest highlights with you. Oh. Oh, wow. It's just such a natural. Oh, Dvash, you're so good. Wow. Wait, hold on. Okay. Oh, Oh, wow. You're a big sister. Do you want to kiss the baby again on on the head? You want to give him a little kiss? Wow. That's so perfect. Wow. Is this hey, Mama belly. That's right, he came out of Mama's belly. And Abba. And Abba. Well, yeah, in some ways, yeah. And that's big sister. And Vash is a big sister. To the baby. To the yeah. baby. You are so sweet and wonderful. Hashem, thank you. Hashem. Hashem, Hashem thank, you. thank you. Hashem, thank you. Oh. And then Mama's belly came out. And Mama's belly came out. Came out. Yeah, it came out. Just came out. This. Oy, how sweet was that? Did you hear that? Hashem, thank you. That was from her. Okay, I often, often say... Thank you, Hashem, for Dvash and for Mama every night when I'm putting her to bed. We just thank Hashem for everything, for, for the baby sheep. Oh, she loves the baby sheep at the farm, for Israel, for life, for each other. We say, you know, I say, thank you, Hashem. But Hashem, thank you. I never say Hashem, thank you, right? That shows an integration. That shows an understanding, right? And it was like an expression of her heart. You know, when I heard her say that, I felt such gratitude that, you know, even if I'm falling short as a father in some ways, 
the most important thing, I really feel like Hashem is blessing me to fulfill it. For Hashem tells us, one of the things that really distinguishes Abraham to make him the chosen one, right? Why did God love Abraham? Genesis chapter 18, verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And so, my friends, that was like one of the most transcendent moments of my life. It made me feel like we are actually really doing that. You know, I, I, I remember years ago, I was briefly seeing a therapist and it came up in conversation as an aside. She said that the role of a father is to make his daughter feel like if he wasn't so in love with her mother, he would want to marry her. Now, you know, don't take, take that literally. You understand what the point is, that if he wasn't so in love with her mother, he would want to marry her. He just loves her so much. He's so, that's how much he loves her. And that really made an impression on me. Um, and, uh, and so that's sort of what I've been going by. But I actually don't know. I want to ask all of you, what is the goal of a father vis-a-vis -a, -vis a son? I don't know the answer to that fully. I, I've, people have shared that with me, but if you have thoughts of that, other than, of course, bringing them close to Hashem and uh, causing them to walk in God's ways, I would love to hear from you if you have thoughts about, like, what is the guiding principle that, uh, I guess, on an emotional level that a father is supposed to do vis-a-vis -a, -vis a son, because I can see suffering from all of the old mistakes and the projection. But anyways, that moment, I was just in it, and I wouldn't trade it for all the money in the world. And ultimately, like, that is my greatest prayer, that my children shall keep Hashem's ways and do justice and judgment, whether they ultimately do or not. You know, some of you have reached out and said, my children are just not on the way, they're not on the path. I've come to believe that's out, all, really all out of our hands. Uh, you know, after all, they aren't expressions of us or extensions of us or reflections of us. They belong to Hashem. And I feel like I'm entrusted with, with these holy souls to guide them toward the light in the best way I can. And the rest is prayer, right? Chizkiyahu didn't want to procreate because he saw the evil that would come from him. But the prophet came and said, no, you can't just look one generation ahead. Also, all the way down the line, the Messiah is going to be there from you as well. We don't know. There's more than meets the eye. And so there's just so, we, there's just so much prayer involved. And by the way, it's also faith. You know, things just don't appear as they are. And it's our job just ultimately, I think, just to love and let the cards fall where they may. Which brings me to this week, right? God willing, the bris, as Jews call it, the brit milah, the circumcision will take place on Wednesday morning at the farm in our house of prayer. It will be the first circumcision on our mountain. It feels historic, definitely for me. But I believe also, listen, I believe also for, for the nation of Israel and for the whole world. The reason that I don't understand why, but I really feel that way. I don't know why, I can't explain it. But I guess that makes me just a Jewish father that believes his son is Messiah, <laughs> right? That his son's going to change the world, take a number, right? But um, the circumcision, the breed, the covenant, I wish we had more time and I could go into different facets and understandings of the covenant because it's really kept the Jewish people alive and together, you know, almost like no matter how assimilated and disconnected Jews get, that is really one of the very last things to go. Even if a Jew says, I don't believe in God at all, of course, I'm going to circumcise my son. You know, we, we see that Abraham circumcised Isaac in the book of, uh, right, in, in the book of Genesis, but in Leviticus, God commanded the Jewish people, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. It wasn't just to Abraham, it was to all of us. It's a covenant with God that is etched into our very flesh, not only our flesh, but the most creative, spiritually powerful aspect of our bodies. But, uh, but you know, Jews aren't the only ones who were circumcised. Ishmael was circumcised as well. Uh, but there's a critical difference between Ishmael and Isaac, uh, primarily related to their conception and circumcision. And that difference resonates all the way to us until their descendants, right? All the way till today. Because Ishmael was conceived naturally, 
right? When Abraham took Hagar at Sarah's behest, then they conceived and Hagar was young and it just happened naturally. Uh, Ishmael was just conceived in, in the most natural way possible, but Isaac was conceived supernaturally. The sages say that Sarah did not have a womb. She was way past menopause. He was conceived on a supernatural level. Ishmael was circumcised at the age of 13, right? The age of understanding of, of Da'at. But Isaac was circumcised at eight days before there's any rational or intellectual capacity to understand. And just as our forefather Isaac, right, the nation of Israel were conceived, were conceived in a supernatural way. And our faith is simple. It's not bound by rational mind or intellectual understanding and making sure we wrap our minds around everything and we get it all. It's the simple, pure faith of Isaac at eight days old. And so it's coming up and I'm trying to open my heart to what Hashem sends us. Because, you know, I remember many months ago, Rav Simcha Hachbaum, you remember him, I've shared him with you. He's one of my most beloved and revered teachers, a true tzaddik. And he brought us this very special chair. I mean, it's just, it's like an, a Hasidic story. He brought us this chair, beautifully carved chair, and just gave it to us. It's called the Kiseshel Eliyahu, the seat of Elijah the prophet. And it's known as the seat that a baby boy is placed on during his circumcision. And he said to me that someday it would make sense why he is bringing me that and putting that in our house of prayer. You know, and that was a big, that was a big thing to say. Like it, it, it pierced my heart. It, what he was saying essentially is the meaning that one day we would have a son. And all of that time, every time I entered the house of prayer, every time I entered our synagogue and I saw it, it strengthened me. And now this great, pivotal, supreme spiritual moment of my son's circumcision is, is approaching. And I don't even know how to go about preparing for it. You know, it's a circumcision is a moment of divine blessing and favor. Like I said, Shana does not wax dramatic. She's not super, like, emotionally all over the place. Really, she's not. She's very, like... I don't want to say calculated. I don't know the word, but she's not like the crier type. But she told me that every circumcision she goes to, she bursts out in tears in fervent prayer. And, uh, you know, any circumcision you would ever go to, you look around and you see people fervently praying with their eyes shut in whatever, whatever way there's, their hearts lead them because there's just a knowledge that the Shekhinah is imbuing and infusing that space at that moment. So I want to invite all of you to the Brit Milah. If you can make it, you're invited. I don't think that live streaming would work from the house of prayer, and I'm not sure that we'll even record it. But it will take place somewhere around 9.50 a.m. Wednesday morning. And, uh, you know, as far as the name that we're going to name our son, we're praying. We still don't know it yet. You know, we don't know what we're going to name him. And we're, we're trying and we're thinking, but you can't force something like that, I guess. We just trust Hashem will put in our hearts the right name when the time is right, because they say that, you know, when a parent names a child, there's a, a touch of prophecy there, that the child's name really does convey something about it, their very essence. I felt that about me. My name, I don't know if it described me or it sort of built me into who I am, you know, but my name is Ari Yehuda, the Lion of Judah, Abramowitz, son of Abraham. My name is the Lion of Judah, son of Abraham. And that has really very much been creative in my journey of walking with God. And I don't know how my parents can give me that name and not expect me to live in a hilltop on a house on the southeastern tip of the Judean frontier. Um, so, uh, so anyways, I, I really want to invite all of you to come. But before I say goodbye and bless all of you, I want to take this opportunity to, uh, to bless my son, that he should be a source of light and love, and healing, and strength, and godliness for all of Israel, and really for the entire world. May he love Hashem, and fear Hashem with all of his heart, and all of his soul, and all of his possessions. May he live a life of uh, physical health, and spiritual health, and abundance, and he should have a life of Torah. And he should go to the chuppah, to the wedding canopy, at the right age, at the right time, with the right girl and build his own family, his own bait Ne'eman Israel, his own faithful home in Israel. And may we all be blessed with only blessings and healing and redemption. And so now it's my great honor to bless all of you as well. This is really a time of blessing. 
And I love the opportunity to bless all of you. Varechecha Adonai Vishmarecha Ya'er Adonai Panavelecha Vichuneka Isa Adonai Panavelecha Isamlecha Shalom. May God bless and protect you. May he shine his light and his countenance upon you. And may he give you peace. Amen. Love you all so much. Thank you for your prayers and your blessings. I have an idea for going into future fellowships, but we'll talk about that next week. For now, the bris is coming up, and I really hope on some degree we're able to all be there together because you're a, you're a part of it. Love you so, so much. Shalom, shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.